But let's uh, join together and pray. Together. Sovereign Lord, by your grace we have come together as your people. Teach us of your ways so that we may walk in your paths. Empower us by your spirit, not only to hear, but also to obey. That your word would be seen in our lives and heard on our lips. Enable us to walk in your light. In your son's name we pray. Amen. I do believe we're going to have the Bible reading. Oh, just Margaret. I need extra pay for this, having to hold it as well. (laughs) I don't know if it's even working. (laughs) This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Thanks for that, Margaret. 10 out of 10 for pronunciation. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you for the kind words before, Cameron. I would have chosen you as well if I'd had any say in the matter, but I didn't, didn't so don't have to prove that. Uh, where are we? Uh, the events of that first Christmas over 2,000 years ago are incredible, aren't they? There's, there's a virgin giving birth, the, the Son of God being born as a human baby. Uh, We have angels appearing to the shepherds, telling them about it. We've got the the star guiding the wise men on the journey and a jealous king who wants this baby dead. Which makes you wonder, why wouldn't Matthew open his gospel by 
talking about some of these exciting events. Why does he start with a, a long list of Jesus' ancestors? And another question, why do we as a church preach on it? Why don't we go straight to the exciting bits in Matthew's gospel? Well, Matthew clearly thought that Jesus' family tree was important. If you think about Matthew's gospel as a whole, all 28 chapters of it, the big point that he's making, the big point that he's trying to drive towards is how Jesus fulfills God's promises to Israel in the Old Testament. So in Jesus, all of God's purposes find their fulfillment. And not just for the nation of Israel, but for all nations. Uh, We've seen the, the closing verses of Matthew chapter 28, probably a verse that's a lot more familiar to you than most of Matthew chapter 1. Jesus tells his disciples, this is after he's been crucified and resurrected, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So this is where Matthew's gospel is driving towards, making disciples of all nations. Jesus came as the fulfillment of God's plan to bring blessing to all nations. This is God's intention all along. Uh, So the significance of having this long list of names at the start of the book is to highlight how God's plans and purposes find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus fulfills everything that has happened in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament points us to Jesus. It shows us that God has an awesome plan to bring blessing to the world through Jesus. So Jesus, if you like, he's the hinge that history turns on. Everything that happens before him was pointing to him, and everything that happens after his life finds its significance in him. Uh, If you've got a leaflet, you um, see that there's an outline you can follow. And over this Christmas series, we're going to be thinking about how, in this season of gift-giving, how Jesus is the greatest gift of all. And this morning, as we look at how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of God's purposes in the Old Testament, we'll be thinking about how the coming of Jesus was an anticipated gift, uh, but it was also a surprising gift as well. And it's not just a gift for for people 2,000 years ago, but it's very much a gift for us today as well. So firstly, Jesus was an anticipated gift. The genealogy that Matthew gives us highlights three key turning points in Israel's history, which point us to Jesus in different ways. So there's God's promises to Abraham, there's God's promises to David, and then there's the exile to Babylon. And Matthew, he's massaged the genealogy a little bit to to highlight these three things. He talks in the end of the passage there about there being 14 generations between each one. He's actually left out a few generations along the way. So if if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see there's there's a few people he's left out of that because he's trying to specifically highlight these three events in the genealogy. Uh, So firstly, we see Abraham in verse 2. Now, it was from Abraham that God established a people to be his own. But God's plan wasn't just to bless Israel through Abraham's descendants. It was to bless all nations. We see that in Genesis chapter 12. We have a look at a few Old Testament passages this morning. Genesis chapter 12, when God first appears to Abraham, he says to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you 
And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So through Abraham's descendants, God is going to do something great. And all people are going to be blessed through it. Now, fast forward a few verses in this passage in a few hundred years. And we get to David, who we see in verse 5. David has been chosen by God to be king over Israel. And David was a great king. He loved God. He ruled well over Israel. After his death, he was the king that all of the Old Testament writers would refer back to. He was the standard they held for what a good king of Israel looked like. God made a promise to David that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said to him, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God makes this promise to King David. So at this moment, as God makes this promise to David, Israel's future looks bright, doesn't it? There's going to be a king on the throne forever. But it doesn't stay that way. Within two generations of David, the kingdom of Israel has been split into two. Some of the kings who follow on from David are good kings. They, they rule well, they obey God. But others are terrible kings. They do evil things, they lead Israel to worship other gods. And gradually, both kingdoms move further and further away from God. But even while this downward spiral is happening, there's still a hint of hope. Hope that another king like David is going to come. Many of the Psalms, which are Israel's songs of praise in the Old Testament, they speak about the king and they describe him in ways that go beyond any earthly king, even David. So Psalm 72 verse 17, for example, says this, May his name, the king's name that is, endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. So you can see that there's, there's a hope that not only are Israel going to be blessed by this king, but all nations are going to be blessed by this king. But this hope appears to be crushed when both of the kingdoms are taken into exile, one after the other, over a couple of hundred years and this, this is the low point in Israel's history. It looks like all their hope is gone. Uh, they've rejected God time and time again, and he's allowed them to be taken into exile by Babylon. It seems that all of God's love for Israel, all of his patience, all of his mercy has finally been exhausted. All hope appears to be lost. But it isn't. Even in this dark time, God is still at work bringing his purposes to fulfillment. Jeremiah was a prophet who was around around the time of the exile. He gave this message from God that we see in Jeremiah chapter 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. So a descendant of David is going to fulfil God's promise. He's going to save God's people. Isaiah was another prophet who wrote in the, the context of Israel. He wrote 
before the exile, but looking ahead to the exile, he speaks of a virgin who will give birth to a son called Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a name which means God with us. He speaks of people living in darkness, seeing a great light as a child is born to them. He speaks also of a servant who will suffer greatly for the sins of his people. And he speaks of people from all nations gathering together to worship God. So even in this dark time, hope remains. There is light in even the darkest of times for Israel. God has not forgotten his people. So Abraham, David, and the exile. There's, There's a great significance that Matthew wants us to see in all three of these events that um, shape our understanding of who Jesus is. So as a son of Abraham, Jesus is identified with the people of God, which Abraham establishes. Uh, He's identified with God's promise to bring blessing to all nations through Abraham. As a son of David, Jesus is in the royal line. He is the rightful king. Just as a side note here, um, Luke's gospel as well has a genealogy of Jesus. I think it's in chapter 3. It's a little bit different to Matthew's gospel. So Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam rather than Abraham. So all the way back to the very first man. And there's a few different names as well. So that period between the exile and Joseph and Jesus, there's there's a few different names in there which, which are a little bit confusing. So Matthew starts all the way, Matthew starts Abraham rather than all the way back to Adam, probably to emphasize this connection between Jesus and Abraham, Jesus and God's promise to bring blessing to all nations. And it appears likely that Luke uses the physical father-son line between sort of David all the way through Jesus, whereas Matthew does it a little bit differently. He records the royal line, so he records who the heir to the throne is, so that converges a little bit differently to how the actual family line goes. And so he's doing that to emphasize that Jesus is not only a descendant of David, but he is the true heir to the throne. Now, the exile, of course, highlights God's promise to act for his people, even in the most unlikely of circumstances. The name Messiah, which is given to Jesus three times in this passage, it means anointed one. So it's, um, it carries this expectation of one that God is going to send to rescue his people. All right, so Jesus is an anticipated gift. He was he- his coming was heavily anticipated in the Old Testament, but he's also a surprising gift. And he's surprising in that God works through such extraordinary and unexpected means uh, to bring his plans to fulfillment through Jesus. So firstly, as we, we scan over some of the names in the genealogy here, we, we see there are some unlikely figures who God chooses to use. Even Abraham and David, who are great heroes of Israel, there's nothing particularly special about them. They weren't particularly special people when God called them. David, for example, he was a shepherd. He was the youngest of eight brothers. He was a complete nobody. When um, Samuel the prophet came to, to find the king that God had chosen, his father didn't even choose to send David out at first because he, he thought, there's no way it could be my youngest son. Uh, we see Ruth mentioned in verse 5. If, if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you'll know that Ruth was a foreigner. She wasn't an Israelite. Uh, she was also widowed with no children as well. So God doesn't just use the most impressive 
Israelite people to, to bring his plans to fulfillment. He uses foreigners. He uses people with humble backgrounds. In a society that was very much male-dominated, he uses women to play a key role in bringing about his purposes. Now, but perhaps it shouldn't surprise us, though, given that God clearly has such a wide scope of salvation to bring blessing to all people. Perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that he would use such a range of people to bring his plans to fulfillment. Not only are there unlikely heroes in this list, there's also scandal and failure throughout the genealogy. It's not a PG-rated genealogy at all. Uh, So we see in verse 3, the mention of Tamar there points us to a great moral failure on Judah's part. Uh, We can read about it in Genesis 38. Judah slept with Tamar, who was his daughter-in-law, thinking that she was a prostitute. Um, It's a pretty horrific story all round. Uh, Rahab, verse 5, was a foreign prostitute. Uh, We meet her in the book of Joshua. The mention of Uriah's wife in verse 6 reminds us that even the great King David committed murder to cover up his own adultery. So even the great king of Israel was a seriously flawed man. Solomon was led astray by his many wives to, to worship foreign gods and make other mistakes. And it was Rehoboam's poor leadership that ultimately resulted in the kingdom of Israel splitting in two and descending from there. See Manasseh as well in verse 10. Manasseh was such an an evil and cruel king. We read in 2 Kings chapter 21 that Manasseh caused Israel to become even worse than other nations that God had destroyed in judgment. Uh, So we can see that he's responsible for great evil. So it's a shameful family tree in many ways, isn't it? And Matthew doesn't try to hide that either. You know, he he didn't have to mention Tamar and Rahab. He he didn't have to specifically point out that it was Uriah's wife who was the father of Solomon. But he did. Because it shows that God works through all sorts of surprising means and all sorts of surprising people to bring about his plans and purposes. Okay, so where does this ancestry of Jesus in the Old Testament leave us today? Well, it leaves us us with two clear conclusions that we see here. Firstly, God's people Israel failed dismally to honour God as they ought to have. And secondly, as a result of their failure, Israel never became what they should have been, which is God's people living in right relationship with him. Instead of living the good life, they spiraled downwards into exile. And even after coming back from exile, life was difficult for them. As the events of Jesus' birth begin, Israel has been a people who have been under the rule of stronger nations for the last 500 or so years. Whether that's Persia or Greece or Rome, they've had a stronger nation that they've been completely subject to. But in the midst of this darkness, God still hadn't forgotten them. He hadn't forgotten the promise he'd made to them that David's throne would someday be occupied once again. And for us in in 21st century Adelaide today, perhaps we're not as far removed from these waiting, downtrodden Israelites as we might think. 
We face the same two realities that the Israelites, that all these generations of Israelites face, which is that on our own, we can't honour God as we ought to. And on our own, we can't live the good life that we strive for, that we were made for, a life in harmony with God. We have struggles in life today, don't we? I don't know what this year has been like exactly for all of you. Um, Perhaps it's been a difficult year for you. And if that's been the case, then you don't need me to, to stand up here and tell you that life can be difficult at times. Perhaps it's been a good year for you. I really hope it has been. But even in the best of years, whether you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus or, or just checking church out, there'll be times when we're overcome by the darker side of life, when we long for something better. I'm sure there have been times this year where you've turned on the news and you've seen something that's just made you think, what is wrong with this world? Or when, when something has happened in your life or in the life of someone you know, and it just makes you think, this is not fair. Why is this happening? Or maybe, maybe it's not something on the outside. It's actually something on the inside that's affected you. You've seen a side to yourself that, that you really don't like. We long for something better. And Jesus came so that we could have something better. The difference between us in the here and now and the the Israelite people 2,000 plus years ago is that they were waiting for the hero to enter the story. They didn't know when he was coming. They didn't know exactly what he was going to do. They just knew, well, the hopes that one day he was coming. Well, today, we know that hero. We know that Jesus came into the world as a man. He lived as God among us. He died so that he could take on himself everything that's wrong with us, all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing. He could take that on himself so that we could be right with God. And he was raised back to life so that his people can have eternal life in him, so that we can face our failures, our flaws, our difficulties, knowing that Jesus has secured for us the good life that we could never have achieved for ourselves. One that will last forever. So Jesus is the greatest gift we could ever be given. He's God's gift of blessing to all the world. So what does that mean for us as we leave here this morning? Well, it means that Jesus is a gift worth receiving. He's a gift worth receiving. He's a gift worth treasuring. And he's a gift worth re-gifting as well. Firstly, a gift worth receiving. Maybe you're here this morning and, you know, whatever Jesus might mean to you, he's, he's not your saviour and he's not your king. You haven't, you haven't given him that place yet. But what if Jesus is the most important person in history? What if everything that happened before Jesus coming to earth was in preparation for him, pointing to his coming and our need for him? And what if everything that's happened since Jesus finds its significance in him? If his death and resurrection give us the hope of life as it was meant to be, life as we want it, would that be enough for you to receive him as your king? To let him take the reins of your life, to call the shots in your life? Maybe that's not quite where you're at yet. You're not, you're not quite ready to, to give Jesus that in your life. 
I'd encourage you to, to keep coming along, keep coming along to our Christmas services next week as we continue to unpack Matthew's gospel, as we get to Jesus' birth and we, we see more and more about what an awesome gift Jesus is for us. That Jesus is a gift worth receiving. Secondly, he's a gift worth treasuring. If Jesus is the one sure hope that we have in this life, our security and our comfort in the good times and the bad, then am I building my life on him? Now, I don't know whether you're into New Year's resolutions or not, but inevitably, this is the time of year where we reflect on the year that's gone and we, we think about what we want the next year to look like. What are my, my hopes and ambitions for next year? And as I think about next year, how am I centering my life on Jesus? And as I think about what I want next year to look like, are my hopes and dreams ones that honor him? Do they reflect a heart that has put Jesus first of all? And what about my fears and anxieties for next year? Are they things that I can trust him with? Knowing that the God who worked through all kinds of human weaknesses and all kinds of bad things, failure, uh, to bring blessing to all nations, uh, knowing that he is equally in control over the good and the bad in my life. And thirdly, Jesus is a gift, is a gift worth re-gifting. I don't mean that in the sense that you get a, a Christmas present that you don't really like, so you try and fob it off to the next person who's got a birthday on. But he's a, he's a gift that we can treasure for ourselves, but still re-gift to other people as well. Everyone we know is someone who needs Jesus, whether they know it or not. They all need the blessing that, that Jesus offers to all people. And so as we think about what 2019 might have in store for us, who might you be able to, to share this hope that you have in Jesus with? Who can you be praying to God for about opportunities to be able to share the hope that you have in Jesus? Now, it sounds quite intimidating telling you to go out and turn all your friends into Christians, but um, it can be simpler than that. It's just thinking about what is the next step that I can take with this person? How can I point the next conversation a little bit closer to Jesus? What's the next small step that I can take in this relationship? And knowing the promise that Jesus makes to us at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, that he's going to be with us always as we go out and honour him. Christmas can be an exciting time of year. It can be a tiring time of year, a happy, a sad, a stressful time of year. It's, it's a bit of an everything time of year, really. There's lots to do, lots to think about, lots to be distracted by. But let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus truly is the greatest gift that we could ever receive. He's the greatest gift that we could ever treasure. He's the greatest gift that we could ever Regift to someone else. He's the fulfillment and the means of God's plan to bring blessing to all nations. I'm going to pray in a moment. After that, we're going to, the band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song called O Come Emmanuel. I mentioned earlier about how um, there was a prophecy that Isaiah made that um, a child will be born called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The song that we're about to sing is really, it's, um, it digs into the, the hope, the hope that Israel had in the time of darkness, uh, that this Emmanuel was going to come, uh, that he was going to rescue them from the darkness 
that they were in. And it's a song that we can very much sing as we, we think about the good times and the bad times in our own life today. And as we, we await that day when we'll see Jesus face to face and we give him great thanks for coming to save us, to give us that assurance uh, that one day all of the pains and struggles in this life will go away. So I'll pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you work through all sorts of people, all sorts of circumstances, all, all sorts of things to bring your plan to fulfillment. Thank you that you have a great heart for all people, that you, you desire to bring blessings to all people and you, through Jesus, you're bringing that about. And we thank you that despite the ways that we fail to honour you, despite the ways that we fail to live lives that are pleasing to you, that you have provided a way through Jesus for us to come to you, for us to be made right with you. We ask that as we think about Christmas this year with all the distractions that happen, that you'd help us not to be distracted from the fact that Jesus is the greatest gift of all and that you'd help us to shape our lives around him, to to shape our lives around him being that great gift and that you'd be blessing us as we try to explain to others what a great gift Jesus is and that you'd be working in their hearts as well and that this may be a Christmas and a year ahead where many might come to understand what a great gift Jesus is. We pray these things in his name. Amen.